Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Music and Spinner.com, where you can get free MP3s, exclusive interviews, and more. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 252, recorded June 10th, 2010. Risky Business. Security Now is brought to you by Go to Assist Express. If you're in tech support, save time and money by supporting your clients and colleagues remotely with Go to Assist Express. For a free 30-day trial, visit gotoassist.com/security. And by Astaro Corporation, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. Visit astaro.com or call 877 the number 4 Astaro to schedule a free trial of the Astaro Security Gateway in your business. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers everything you, you, yes, you need to know about security. And fortunately, we got a great guy to do it, Mr. Steve Gibson. He is the guru at grc.com. Guru Research Corporation. He's no Gibson Research Corporation. <laughs> he is also the guy who uh, discovered and coined the term spyware. Wrote the first anti-spyware program. Has written many free security tools, all of which are available at grc.com. And the creator of Spinrite, which is uh, his bread and butter and the best hard drive maintenance utility out there to to this date. Although Steve, you're going to have to uh, do something when everybody goes solid state. I don't know what you're going to do. Uh, it's true. Crypto Link, maybe. Crypto Link to the rescue. Yeah. Yeah, yes. That's the next stage. People are worried it's never going to happen. Well, no, it's going to happen. It has happen. to happen. <laughs> it's got to happen. <laughs> Steve, is, Steve is out on the bench there, the park bench feeding Although, the pigeons. I guess the good news is that Spinrite tends to be used on drives people have had for a while, which have finally given up the ghost, and it gives them you know, another life as opposed to... Uh, I mean, although a lot of people use it on drives, they buy fresh because they want to check it before they uh, stick it into a machine, just like you guys do. So it, it certainly is useful right out when your drive is coming out of the box. So it'll have, you know, it'll have a long tail on it. And, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. But, you know, there, it, it is not the case that it helps solid-state drives at all in any way, and it would be bad for them. So, you know, don't run it on SSDs. It's just that just doesn't make any sense. What is the topic of the day today? We have... There's a, there are a couple more things I want to finish up on our sort of fundamentals. And the title for today's show is Risky Business, where risky is R-I-S-C in capitals, being an acronym for Reduced Instruction Set Computing. Uh, we've, I want to talk about, and this is going to be, I think, really fun, the... The evolution of the architectures of computing from where, from the, the architecture we've described so far, sort of a basic, starting, simple, this is what instructions look like and how the computer works. Today, I'm going to take us all the way through this revolution in the, the, like the way computers are designed into sort of what, what, what happened with them as they got increasingly complex, what the pressures were from various sides, and what the result 
was. I think people are going to find it very interesting. And we've got a ton. Boy, it's been a busy week in uh, in security activity. It's true. We we moved the show a little bit from Wednesday to Thursday. And that might be a good thing because more stuff has happened. Yeah. Uh, since the show, we usually record this uh, Wednesday at two p.m. Eastern, and uh, because Paul Thorat's schedule didn't accommodate that, we you flipped with uh, Paul. Thank you. Yeah, for doing that. So, and it turns out this was probably a good thing because <laughs> there's even more stuff to talk about. Uh, so, sh- so what should we start with? Well, the we'll do updates first. Um, there wasn't much, but what there was is important. Um, the big news was that Adobe got hit with uh, the news of a new, previously unknown zero day exploit, which was discovered in the wild. Friday, they were informed a little after 10 a.m. Uh, Pacific time, almost a week ago, and the, the they acknowledged the problem. They posted some news on their site. Um, I blogged about it, and so anyone who had subscribed to um, the steve.grc.com blog would have found out about it at that point. In fact, you and I talked about it on your Tech Guy show on Sunday because it was regarded as a very critical vulnerability. It affected Flash. So going to a site where you had Flash active could allow some malicious code to get into your computer and take over. But also Adobe Reader and Acrobat both have Flash components. That is, you're able to put Flash in a PDF and that component was vulnerable as well. So the, the, the remediation of this, dealing with this problem, um, was, a, was of great concern for people. Adobe had previously taken about two weeks to respond to something like this. The good news is they've cut that in half. They're, they've said that today, as we're recording this, Thursday, June 10th, that at some point today... They will have a fix for the flash portion of this, but not for the the PDF and um, and the Acrobat portions for another two weeks. Not until I think they said June 29th. So the the largest exposure they're going to be dealing with um, on my blog page, uh, which is the current blog steve.grc.com. I've got links to. Adobe Labs to deal with the flash problem. So people who had responded immediately, what I was recommending people do is jump ahead rather than waiting for Adobe to fix their version 10.0 point whatever it is, flash, I think it's actually 0.45.2, to jump ahead to 10.1 because Adobe, Adobe originally said, that was not vulnerable. They've now, they believed it was not vulnerable. Now they've confirmed it's not vulnerable. And it's at release candidate 7 level. It's very stable and reliable. Lots of people are using it. So, by, so all of this week, people who had, who had received that information from me um, were able to, to protect themselves. And I'll remind our listeners that they can use the multi-browser mozilla plugin check uh, mozilla.org slash plugin check will on any browser check to make sure that the flash plugin 
is the most recent. At the at this moment, it says everything's fine because what it's saying is that your plugin is current, even though what's current is a problem. So what will happen if you do it again later today or or tomorrow, Friday, after Adobe has published their update, is then your plugin check will say, oh, you no longer have the most recent one, you know, click here to update. So that's an easy way for people to check when Adobe has released the official fix for the 10.0 version of Flash. If if listeners want to do something immediately, I would say without hesitation, go to labs.adobe.com and you can install instead the, the next major release, which is just about ready for release, but not quite yet which is version 10.1, and you'll be okay. So uh, the Firefox plugin doesn't tell you that you're insecure. It only tells you that there's an update. So this is important to understand because I think it kind of gives you the presumption that, oh, it's it's checking to see if I'm insecure. It doesn't do that. It only says there's a new version if there's a new version. Correct. You need a new version, but there isn't a new version, so it won't tell you. And and it it won't tell you about betas apparently either. No. And if it told you you were vulnerable, well, you would then say, okay, what do I do? And it's like, well, they don't have anything for you to do because Adobe hasn't released the fix yet. Right. Now, this only handles, unfortunately, for the next two weeks, um, this only handles no matter what you do, whether you wait for Adobe to release a fix for 10.0 or you jump ahead to 10.1, as I would recommend, um, this only fixes the flash side. There's a problem with PDFs, and we know that the bad guys are probably going to recognize that only part of this has been fixed for whatever reason and may start targeting people with PDFs. Um, There there is a file called – boy, I'm blanking on it. It's off something. Well, I blogged it. It's steve.grc.com again, my blog. There are two things you need to do. You need to deal with the flash problem and also with the – the um, reader problem. I stopped using reader a long time ago because of all these issues. Right. You use Foxit. And so people who do have reader as their their registered... So it's offplay, A-U-T-H-P-L-A-Y dot D-L-L. D-L-L, right, offplay. And so the recommendation is to find instances of that on your machine and i provide the path where it'll be installed with, with reader and or acrobat and just rename it to like authplay.xxx so that your system won't know it exists it won't be what able will to happen find it. will it break the reader or well if you yes if you huh. if you then clicked on you know if, if your pdf opened and tried to invoke the flash you'd get an error oh, saying flash won't un- work but the reader flash- will continue to work Precisely. Got it. Exactly. So only only a probably malicious PDF wouldn't work, and that's what you want right. is for it not to work. So basically, you would be neutering the 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 PDF's ability, the the reader's ability to play Flash, which is a. I mean, whoever wanted a PDF to have Flash content in the first place? I, I feel like okay. And apparently, you're able to disable that feature using the control panel, but it still doesn't protect you from this vulnerability. Okay. Go, go figure. So anyway, um, I guess I would recommend, given that we now know Adobe has formally said they're not going to have a fix for this problem with the PDF aspect of the vulnerability, 
for another two weeks, um, I would be uncomfortable knowing that if I opened a PDF, it could get me. So I would follow the recommendation of, of renaming authplay.dll to like .xxx, and then you're going to be safe until Adobe fixes this. And when that get, when you install an update to that, it'll just put in a new authplay.dll, and your old XXX will, you know, you could delete it at that point. I mean, you could delete it now for all, for all anyone cares, probably. Probably safer just to rename it. Though. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, uh, for once, Windows Patch Tuesday is not the top of the list um, because it's just sort of another one. Okay, fine. We've got 10 security bulletins. Uh, three out of the 10 are uh, maximum uh, rating of critical. This eliminates 34 new known vulnerabilities in both Windows Desktop and Server OSs in Internet Explorer and Office. So we are now past the second Tuesday of June. Microsoft has released these. Of course, the advice to everyone is update yourself sooner rather than later. Um, and you probably have to reboot your system, so choose a comfortable time to do that. Um, and I did note although I don't think this is a big problem um, just because it doesn't represent a large attack surface, Adobe Photoshop, once again Adobe, uh, both CS, CS2, CS3, and CS4 have a known critical vulnerability in them such that if you opened a, an image in Adobe Photoshop that had been maliciously crafted, you would be in trouble. Like I said, well, okay, that doesn't seem like a huge problem, but I just wanted to let everyone who does have those versions of Photoshop to go check now. Updates are available, so just ask Photoshop to check for updates for itself, and if there is one, that's what you want. Should I uh, take a break here? Sure. All right. Well, let's take a little teensy-tiny break. Security Now is, uh, is on, and uh, we're going to talk about security news including, I might add, that uh, big AT&T story. And I, and I have a little story to tell about how we puzzled about covering it yesterday. Because okay. we knew about it early, but we, we weren't sure exactly what to do. And I'd like to talk about that as well. Sometimes the story is not just what happened. It's, it's the coverage uh, that it got That's as well. It, yeah, you want to talk about what it means. What it means. That's what we do on this show. Before we do that, let me talk about, as long as we're talking about security, let me talk about our good friends at Astaro, the makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. They were the first sponsor on the Twit Network. They first sponsor on Security Now and still a sponsor. And we're so happy because, look, at this is a product I believe in. In fact, I've got a, I have my Astaro Security Gateway here. I should probably give it to our new uh, Director of Engineering, Ken, and let him, him play with it. And I know from feedback that a lot of our listeners have, they have use chosen it. it, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really great device. It's what's called a UTM, Unified Threat Management. That means it's more than just a firewall. Kind of, I could pull it out here. It looks like a firewall. Uh, it looks like a router, but it's, you know, industrial strength, heavy gauge steel. Not so big. Uh, although they come in different sizes. I, I think it's big in heart because, you know, you can use their unique active-active clustering to uh, cluster as many as 10 into one uh, enterprise so that they really grow with you without additional load balancing. They grow with you. But what does it do, you probably want to know? Well, it's got the best in breed in commercial and non-commercial software to give you the best protection, of course, in industrial strength. 
buzzword compliant firewall. Uh, but you also get three antiviruses, two for email, one for the web. Complete intrusion protection, complete content filtering as well. So you control what your users are doing, including peer-to-peer and instant messaging. Um, VPN is built in using all of the you know standards, including IPsec, uh, PPTP over IPsec. And uh, what I really like it is it, it also, uh, or I'm sorry, L2TP over IPsec and PPTP tunneling, but also uses SSL, which means it's very easy to configure and set up for your end users as well. It has uh, email encryption, decryption, and digital signatures based uh, through the UTM. So, you you know, your desktops do it automatically based on both or either SMIME or OpenPGP standards. Again, completely automatic transparent to your users i can go on and on this is a really great package you know you you can call astaro at 877 the number four a-s-t-a-r-o that's toll free in the u.s if if you call them now and you can get a, a demo unit in your place of business free or just answer get some questions answered 877-427-8276 you could also visit them at astaro.com and if you go to astaro.com slash security now uh if you're a non-commercial user you can do- download the software. There's also a VMware uh, appliance you can download free, including a Starro up to date, which they normally charge 79 euros to the, for. They decided to give that to you free as well for non commercial use. And it does have a limited number of IPs, but uh, not very. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of the honor system. ASTARO, call 877 the number four ASTARO for your free unit in your business to demo. And we thank Astaro so much for their support of security now. All right, we've done the uh, the, the updates, what's out there. Now let's get the security news because there's some big stuff going on. Yeah, probably the, the most alarming story broke very recently um, relative to our recording of the podcast. And that was the news, which uh, unfortunately was overwrought, I would say, is probably the right term, Mm -hmm. uh, and also blaming the wrong person, in my opinion. Uh, The news was originally um, posted by Gawker. um, Not known for its security coverage. No. (laughs) Um, and, And their headline, even now, after it's clear that this is not the case says that it's a huge breach in Apple's iPad security, naming Apple as, like, the focus of this. Um, So here's the story. Um, Some, a group of researchers at a company called Goatsy Security, security security.goatse.fr, they discovered the protocol which AT&T was using to fill in the email address field for the login to their system on the iPad. So the idea would be an iPad user who wanted to check on their AT&T account status would bring up the control panel in the iPad and the email address is one of the two authentication fields which you fill in so what the ipad was doing was it was sending what's known as the idd i'm sorry the icc id to at&t that stands for integrated 
circuit card identifier, which is part of the SIM, the you know the standard SIM card. SIM stands for Subscriber Identity Module. So that's part of the standard data in the SIM card is this ICC ID. So that was going on the fly to AT&T's servers and making essentially making a standard web request, an HTTP request from the iPad to AT&T's servers database. The servers were then responding with the email address of the user oh. so that it could in the clear in the clear so that it could populate that field which made it it was a convenience feature which made it easier for then the user to just all all they had to then provide was their password right that, that, that matched their account name the account name being this email address that they had used so the bad news is that there was no security protecting this. This was a an in-the-clear standard HTTP query and response, like we've talked about on the show endlessly. So the Goatsy guys realized that anyone could make such a query of AT&T's back-end database of subscribers' email addresses using made-up ICC IDs. The ICC ID is a is a fixed format, international standard, part of GSM, which goes along with the SIM cards. It's 20 digits long, the the 20th digit being a check digit. So it's sort of a checksum for the 19 which precede. The 19 digits are fixed fields, sort of like a MAC address of of known fields, like, for example, the carrier's identity and, and other stuff. And then a, there's a chunk of digits at the end, which is like a serial number. So many excited iPad owners were taking screenshots of this <laughs> panel of theirs, because this you, you can see, you bring up sort of like in the about uh, dialogue on an iPad, and it shows you your ICC ID, which is this 20-digit number. So there were, you know, many people were sharing this without any concern on the net. And frankly, any iPad owner could easily look at it. So what the hackers did cleverly was they reverse engineered the protocol, which was trivial because it, you only had to, in, in the user agent field, you had to pretend to be an iPad so you use the iPad's user agent to make it look like an iPad was making the query to AT&T's servers. And then they just set up a PHP script to try all possible ICC IDs within the range that were known to be iPads because they're sequential, unfortunately. So they started like at uh, at ICC IDs close to those that had been shown publicly and they just had their script try them all. And what was embarrassing to AT&T and a con- great concern to many people is they collected 114,000 <laughs> email addresses. Wow. Like many like .gov and army.mil 
and and uh, apparently you know A-list celebrities and all kinds of government officials who were when you see their email address, you know who it is right. because you know like Rahm Emanuel, uh, chief of in, staff in the White House, the exactly. White House, yeah. And so, so the news that broke was that this was a you know. Of course, unfortunately, Apple was dragged into this because they made the iPad, although this was entirely AT&T's fumbling of, of not protecting the email addresses of their 3G customers better. It would have been certainly possible. I mean, I, I would argue, unfortunately, that, you, that it's probably not ultimately protectable. Because, as we know, if the iPad could generate a query, then it's possible, no matter what, to reverse the iPad's generation of the query and pretend to be an iPad. So it's not I me, mean, but but AT&T could have made it so much more difficult, could have raised the bar so much that it would have never been a problem. Well, they could have hashed it or something. I guess they they can't though because the software. They would have had to encrypt it right. because they couldn't hash it because they want to show you what your email address right. is. So, um, so they would have had to do, have done reversible encryption in order. So it would have had, that capability would have had to been built into the software. Precisely, and yeah. if so, if the software reverse engineered, somebody could you know issue their own. They could just you know arranged to like change the ICC ID and have the iPad do it. So, so the, so. The bar couldn't have been raised all the way up, but it could have been so much higher that, well, you know, I'm sure that these guys were doing some packet sniffing and they saw the data in the clear. Right. And they they said, hey, wait a minute. But if instead it had just been scrambled, they would have never occurred to them what was going on. So, so yes, AT&T blundered by, by not protecting this data more strongly and, you know. Now, That's, what did they get, though? They only got an email address. Yes. How? Well, let me ask you a question. I mean, look, uh, you know, I just showed my ICC ID. Now, this, by the way, was patched by AT&T, fixed on Tuesday. Prior to the release of the news. Yeah. So, this, so what, there was some responsible disclosure done so that prior to the release, AT&T was allowed to fix it so that it wouldn't be, still exist. And Goatsy, by the way, tried to give this story to a lot of mainstream media, all of which ignored it. Probably because of the name Goatsy Security. I would have ignored it. It sounds like a 4chan prank. Um, but how bad is it, really? If they got, I mean, I showed my ICIC ID. Even if that hack still was out there, people would then have my email address, which is available publicly in many, many places. Is it How bad is it that your email address gets out? Well, I'm thinking that's for everyone to judge. Right. The, probably the, the concern that's is... That's all they got, right, is email addresses. That's all they got. They 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 got the email address that was used for the 3G account. You know, I, I made up an email address for the purpose. Oh, you know, th- oh, there's there some. You, you know, I didn't use my real email address just because <laughs> that's who I am. Um, but you know, so people have oftentimes multiple email addresses. They may have scratch ones or or discardable ones or who knows what. So, um, so the concern is yes. You know, I mean. I guess I would say it's controversial. You could decide it's a big thing. You could decide it's not a big thing. But you're right, Leo. All they got was a large database of early adopters of iPads' email addresses. Would have been better if they had not gotten that? Absolutely. 
And, uh, and maybe pe- some embarrassment pe- from the people with the mill addresses that they were using their business corporate, ad- <laughs> you know, government address. I, I would hope Rahm Emanuel wasn't using his super secret White House address for registering his iPad. I mean, that would be kind of dumb. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we know that dumb stuff happens all the time, which yeah. actually gives us plenty to talk about on the <laughs> show. Uh, and, and you know what? I won't belabor it, but we were trying to decide. The story broke while uh, Tom was doing TNT, our new uh, daily uh, news show that he does at 2.30 Pacific, 5.30 Eastern every uh, day on Monday through Friday on Twit Live. And Tom and Becky Worley were uh, in here, and uh, Dane came in with the He saw it and and said, we, you know, they might want to know this. And we were afterwards debating whether how to cover it. And I think what Tom did was was good, which was he said, this is just coming across. We'll look into it more. Um Certainly, it's not as sensationalistic as, and I, I think Gawker is probably not well prepared to to break a story like this, frankly. So we decided we opted not to cover it as a big breaking story, and now I'm glad we didn't. And that's yes. kind of the issue: is is how do you cover something like that? Yes, and, and uh, it does take some time to process this. I missed a call from Reuters uh, yesterday evening. They were trying to get a hold of me for exactly that purpose, to help them understand if, if, if this was a big this deal is. or yeah, not. Yeah. And I would have said to them, eh, you know, here's what it is. You know, I can't make that judgment. That's a value judgment. But I can tell you the facts. Right. The facts are due to a, a mistake on AT&T's part, a big block of email addresses were sucked out of AT&T's database. They should not have allowed that to happen the individuals who who subscribed can change their email addresses. They can be more the wiser now. I mean, there's enough spam in the world. I would imagine lots of people have these people's email addresses already. Right. So one more person does. Uh, yeah. Good. Well, there's the story, and I, that's that's why we do this show, so you can get intelligent under you know and under a clear explanation of what really happened. So, the never-ending tale of Google's Wi-Fi inadvertent <laughs> plain text capturing. Yeah. Um, Which is another the, case of where you others have been fairly sensationalistic, and I think you've been very level-headed. Well, yes. Okay. Um, so, it, this is the story that refuses to die, although certainly Google wishes that it would. Canada has now joined the fray, uh, adding themselves to Germany, Italy, France, and, of course, the U.S., uh, FTC, who we talked about last week, investigating, unquote, this. Um, what happened was, I mean, the news of the week is that Google hired an independent third party to analyze what they did, what happened. And the third party produced a report I don't remember how many pages now, uh, like 20-page report, which analyzes the source code that Google used as part of this. And it's one, this is another one of these classic controversies where, you, where, where if you want to read it as bad, you can. And if you want to read it as not so bad, you can read it that way too. Because the the... Source code contains a bunch of defaults for the way the Wi-Fi sniffing will work such that it can be configured not 
to save encrypted data. And the the sniffing software defaults to not saving the, the packet payload, the contents of the of the Wi-Fi frames, as they're called, because really only th- the only thing that Google cared about, I've always asserted, was the header information, which contained the SSID and the MAC address. That's the information that was valuable. And it seems entirely reasonable that they use sort of generic software to obtain that. And unfortunately, this generic software had a default so that it would save the payload of the packets when it was not encrypted. And so in this report, they show the bit in the packet which identifies whether the payload of the packet is encrypted or not. And that, the, that, that in the case that encryption is in use, the, the payload is not saved. So what's, a, what's, what's a bit surprising and, could, and people who, who think Google did wrong on purpose, they could say, aha, Google wasn't saving everything. They were only saving the things that they could read. On the other hand, you could say, well, but the software that they used unwittingly knew better than to save stuff Garbage. that was encrypted <laughs> right. because it was we know that's pseudo-random noise. Somebody in the chat room saying they were using an off-the-shelf uh, program called Kismet. Is that is that the case? Yes. Oh, yes. well, so they were just using... Oh. Yeah, I mean, it was literally th- this... And then they wrapped it in some of their own code, all beginning with Gs, G this and G that, you know, short for Google, obviously. And, um, and, and so, so maybe their case, maybe the, we, we weren't using any of this would have been stronger if they'd been saving everything. Everybody wishes they'd been saving nothing. What they were saving was the part, the stuff they could read. But I don't but not think because that, they wanted to read it precisely. <laughs> and remember that I guessed a couple of weeks ago that these vans that were driving around, and I guess they had people on, on fancy bicycles also, that they were, they were just streaming this all in and doing no analysis on the fly. Turns out that is the case. Um, I was assuming that they were just out roaming around, sucking all this in, adding the moment-to-moment signal strength, which actually is part of what Kismet records, and the GPS metadata, so they would know where they were when they recorded this, and just stuffing it all on hard drives to then be analyzed at leisure offline outside of the vehicle that was doing this roaming, which is exactly the way the system worked. So, you know, that's the story. Um, the there To me, this this provides additional detail, but... What I'm seeing is that people are jumping on this saying, oh, look, um, this report further incriminates Google. And I don't read it that way. But again, I could, you know, it's understandable how somebody who's really determined to do so, you know, could. Yeah. yeah. Now, there, uh, I, I, I noticed in other news, the, the California Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals just upheld a ruling by a lower court deny and this is an entirely unrelated case but it relates to this issue 
uh, denying damages in a class action suit brought by some random guy on behalf of a bunch of other, you know, presumably damaged people whose social security number was contained in a laptop that was lost. Um, I think it was, um, shoot, I can't think of the retailer now. It's a, a clothing retailer, short name. Uh, anyway, there were, it was a clothing retailer who... Coles, Kroger, Macy's, <laughs> they're all short. <laughs> Gap, I think it Gap. was. That's even shorter. Was, yep, I think it was Gap. And so somehow... He, you know, his personally identifiable information, they, you know, in responsible disclosure, let him know that that a, a subcontractor of theirs, like Venture or somebody, um, had this laptop and it got lost. So he's upset and sues because he's annoyed. And so the what the lower court ruling asserted through a careful reading of of California Constitution was that actual concrete damages, proven damages, must have resulted and that simply being annoyed is insufficient. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> you can't and, sue for being annoyed. Right. <laughs> right. And so so here again, this, of course, uh, bears on the Google issue because there are now several class action suits that have been filed against Google because people are annoyed. And it's like, well, okay. You know, I I don't know who's going to, you know, only the attorneys make money on this. So to me, this is a, a non-issue. But, you know, the good news is maybe the word will get out that, you know, this is not any way to cash in on a mistake. Right. I believe an honest mistake that Google made. Certainly, right. they would do it differently if they could. And my last little bit of security news is just an update. Windows 7 Service Pack 1 uh, is due out around the end of July. So a um, little less than two months from now, anyone installing new versions of Windows 7 won't have to go through the laborious process of installing all bazillion security updates which have accumulated since the release of 7. You'll be able to install the the service pack one and catch up to be current at that point. Excellent. Um, and end of July. Um, in errata, I just wanted to mention a couple things. Several of our listeners wrote in, Leo, to tell us what router meant. <laughs> I know what router means. I know, oh, I know. I, I didn't realize that it, it has only, a, well, in Australia. It has, as in Australia, yeah. apparently. Maybe it means horn dog. I'm not, not sure. exactly. Rooting is like rutting. In in the states, we use the uh, word rutting in the same exact context. I not see. to make okay. this show not safe for work, but that's what's going on. So in in Australia, they pronounce it router. In Britain, where the connotation doesn't exist, they pronounce it router. Okay. I don't care. You call it whatever I, you want. I don't. Well, we're going to router. We've agreed. We've agreed. Router is what it is. We have a term here. Firmly yes. lodged in California. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do want to mention for all of the people who own Kindles, not to feel badly. Um, I prefer it over the iPad to reading. Um, it's just I've. I that was, was one of the th questions. You know, the jury was out. Um, now, is it because of the screen for you? 
Um, it's the, it's everything. It's okay. It's the screen. It's the weight. It's I mean, they're clearly Apple is aware that there's a glare problem with an LCD. Right. It can easily be glary right. because normally you're reading black text on white, and the Kindle software has a has an independent brightness control so that you're able to dim the screen below what it's where it's normally set for when you're reading and i use that so, in the in the darkness yes uh, which yes. by the way the apple software also has um and so so you know clearly if the apple software has it too people yeah. are sort of aware that there's a glare problem um when i used to be reading on my palm pilots or my palm at past you know after the time they were pilots mm-hmm. i would um i was reading white text on a black background that i that was much more pleasant for me to read so so i actually do find that a reflective screen is easier on my eyes that is the original you know right. e-ink kindle screen somehow it's just it's taken the photons that are available in the environment and bouncing them off the screen rather than emitting any of its own and and also the size the weight the you know i can't really say the battery life because it's just not an issue on the ipad the battery life life is long enough thanks to the you know the arm based processor which we'll be talking about by the end of this episode how and why it lasts so long and and gets such good battery life um so I just wanted to mention that I'm, uh, you know, in fact, it's it's where wizards stay up late. The book you recommended last week. Oh, I got good. it. How do you like? It? I've, I've begun reading it. It's fun. It's it's. I don't think it has a huge audience. That is, it's no, that's so why it much. Didn't sell that well. <laughs> yes, I wouldn't expect it would. Yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying it because I like the history of all this and I lived through it, and so I was like, oh. Now I know exactly where the word packet came from, yeah, which yeah. I didn't know before. Right. But it's like, okay, I'll just tell everybody where it came from when we <laughs> discuss it here in a couple of weeks. And they don't have to read the book to find out. So, But I'm enjoying it. But I was noticing some discomfort on the iPad. It was just maybe, you know, one of the things is it's there's just so much text there. Maybe I've gotten used to more bite-sized pages sort of like what the Kindle provides. I feel like this huge page of text on the iPad, like the screen's too big. And so, in fact, I went I went all the way and installed the Amazon Kindle Reader on my iPod Touch and tried reading some more of it um, Sunday. And I decided, okay, that's too small. So, you know, the... The Kindle sort of seems to be just right for me. So I'm, I, I'm not unhappy that I have it. I, I wonder if... Uh People who uh, see, I read mostly in bed, so I like a device that has is backlit because I don't have to turn on a light. Doesn't bother Jennifer, uh, right. and so right. and I dim it because it's it will hurt my eyes. But when it's dimmed, in fact, the Kindle has a sepia color that I like a lot. It's yes. I find it easy to use, legible. And the truth is, I don't hold the Kindle or the iPad in the air. Both in both cases, they're resting on something because I'm not gonna <laughs> even probably the, your. Maybe your stomach, my deal? stomach, or a pillow. Sometimes I read sideways, yeah. and and even the Kindle. It's not the weight of the Kindle; it's your arms. It's the weight of your arms. It's a pain in the butt. So, uh, right. if you were on the other hand reading anywhere where there was bright light, uh, uh, outside particularly, the Kindle would be a clear choice. 
So I think depending on, but it's interesting. My wife prefers the Kindle. Uh, my mom has now an iPad and a Kindle. She prefers the Kindle. So I think it is probably a little easier on the eyes for the occasional reading that I do and programming manuals, things like that. Um, I actually like the iPad and use it. I gave up my Kindle. My wife has it now. And I have to say, um, the fact that it's so, that synchronization that works so well, it's both, nice. I, yep. both, and I guess Apple announced that they would have cross-iBook synchronization yeah. too. So that's really wonderful. I mean, you you can you can grab the device of the you know that's best for your current situation. Exactly. And, and I mean, not everybody's going to have both, but if <laughs> if you can right. afford to have both, it is nice to have that uh, capability. And I do I do in fact do that all the time. Yeah. So uh, and that's because um, it's also on the iPhone, and uh, so I can and the new iPhone with that screen might be a very I have to see it, but might be a very good reading device. I'll be very curious if it's a good reading device. You know, I'm very interested in the screen too. I yeah. did note that a physicist took issue with what Steve claimed the so-called Retina display. Right. Um, I I'll fill in our listeners a little bit. I mean, I'm very screen oriented. You know, my I hail from the light pen on the Apple II, which is one of the products that I designed pre, in a previous life. Um, I'm extremely resolution resolution sensitive. I mean, I think the more is better. And so, whereas the i the current generation iPhone and iPod Touch are 480 by by 360 resolution, um, yes. Or is it 320? 320. 480 by 320. They the next generation iPhone doubles the resolution in each direction, so you have four times the number of pixels total. It's um, it's uh, 960 by 640, and Steve Jobs was claiming that at about 12 inches away, that the resulting 326 pixels per inch was below the eye's ability to resolve pixels. Turns out that's not the case. Um, it's the way to think of it, the, the retina's resolution is 50 hertz per degree. And that is 50 cycles per degree. And so if you calculate what that means at 12 inches, that actually means about 477 pixels per inch is the retina's ability to resolve, which is not to take anything away from Steve and his retina display and and certainly the spectacular resolution of the screen. But, you know, uh, the the person who did the analysis said, let's try to keep people honest. honest. Yeah. Yeah. It was actually yeah. the uh, the one I saw was by the guy who heads DisplayMate, which is a, a company that makes software for calibrating monitors and has been in this business for years and years and years. Ah. Uh, so maybe this physicist said the same thing. Now, if you hold it at arm's length, you can't resolve pixels. But the point is, nobody's holding it at arm's length. Exactly. I, my issue is when you get uh, d- dot densities that high, uh, sometimes I find it, as an older guy, harder to read because the icons and text get smaller. Yeah, they're clearer, but they're too small for me to read. So I, you know, I, I, I'm reserving judgment till I hold one of these and, and use it for a while. Yes, one of the problems is that that and this is something that I do trust Apple to to, to do, and I see other companies um, you know get it wrong. And that is, for example, when I talked earlier about reading books with the screen inverted on my palm, when when I was looking at white text on a black background, it was very often the case that it would kind of get pinched. 
but is you know the the, the it was a serif font unless I manually overrode the font, which is what I ended up having to do in order to get a stronger non-serif font to have it look right when it was inverted. So things like the way pixels will bloom a little bit, if you invert them, then what was blooming before becomes pinched and it just doesn't look right. Mm. But, but again, that's the kind of detail that Apple really does, you know, is good at taking care of. Right. So. Right. I have a feeling they'll they'll do the right thing. Be interesting to see. Yeah. I have a fun Spinrite story uh, to share with our listeners. This is a Spinrite Saves the Wedding <laughs> um, from Darren Bessett in Thornton, Colorado. He wrote, Dear Steve, here's, another, here's yet another Spinrite success story to add to your collection. A good friend of mine and teaching colleague is getting married later this month in June. And has been preparing for an, for an elaborate wedding of over 200 guests. Like most couples planning a big wedding, she and her fiancé had developed a detailed wedding plan to manage the event, including numerous electronic files such as an invitation database, digital photographs, and PDF event, PDF event contracts. Jeez all, Louise. <laughs> <laughs> all of this data was stored on a laptop computer, which, as you may have already guessed, is where the story is going. It one day failed to boot because of a faulty OS hard drive, and after repeated unsuccessful attempts to get the machine started, the couple had given up all hope. They were absolutely devastated because the bulk of their wedding plans were now trapped in a laptop that would not boot. How could such meaningful and important information succumb to a cheap electronic device? Enter Spinrite into the story. Upon hearing their dilemma, I immediately thought of the myriad stories you have chronicled over the years detailing the amazing feats of Spinrite. Although I've been using Spinrite for five years as a maintenance utility, I never needed to fix a faulty drive. Ah, guess why? (laughs) Because he's using it as a maintenance utility. Mm -hmm. Here was my opportunity to give it a try for that purpose. After configuring the broken laptop's BIOS to boot from the CD drive, I ran Spinrite Level 2, and within an hour, the defective sector on the drive had been identified and data recovery was underway. Afterwards, the laptop booted, and the wedding files were all retrieved. Wow. Needless to say, the couple was overjoyed with the result. Although... Probably not the most romantic wedding gift. I will be giving them their own copy of Spinrite. <laughs> Thanks again, Steve, for a great podcast that truly works and for saving the wedding day. Or, I'm sorry, for a great product that truly works. The podcast works, too. And for saving the wedding day. Sincerely, Darren Bessett. I hope you gave them something else in addition to Spinrite for their <laughs> wedding gift. <laughs> hey, they may have been happy given the fact hey, that they had a wedding otherwise. I think the gift was he got their he got their computer working again. Exactly. That's the gift. Steve, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we continue with our saga, uh, building a computer from first principles. Risky business. Oh, this is going to be so good, Leo. I can't wait. I'm excited. Before we do that, though, I'd like to mention for our friends listening who do support. Now, I know everybody listening does some support, whether it's for family or friends. But particularly for those of you pros out there who are supporting software or you're an IT person, do you know about GoToAssist? Would you like to try it? Because let me tell you, this is the product you need. 
Uh, I use it for family support. They do have day passes, which makes it very affordable for family support. You can get gang up all of the stuff you need to do in one Saturday and just do it all at once. But if you're in IT, they have monthly passes as well. And go to assist, because it's built on that great remote access foundation that Citrix pioneered, um, it's just easy to use. Your client does not have to have it installed ahead of time. You don't have to walk down the hall, put it on their computer, then walk back to fix it. You just send them a link. Or you invite them to go to gotoassist.com where they enter in the ID that you give them. And then you're suddenly you're in. It takes about 20 seconds to install the software. It's that quick, that easy. And let me tell you, the features it has that will make your life easier are significant. For instance, uh, eight sessions at once. So you don't have to wait for that install or the scan to complete before you move on to the next one. Uh it does an assay of what's running on the system. So you can know what operating system, what security software, what's running in the background. That is extremely helpful. Um, what else can you do? Um, let me go, if you go to go to assist.com slash security, let me just type that in right now. You will be able to sign up for 30 days free and answer that question for yourself. 128-bit SSL, so no leakage of information. Um, it allows you to copy files, drag and drop files from your computer to the other. There is a go to assist corporate if you're a big business and you can find out more about that at go to assist.com slash security. But I think for most of us, go to assist express is the solution you need at a very affordable price. Try it free. That's affordable for 30 days. Setup takes just a couple of minutes. Go to go to assist.com slash security for your free trial. Citrix does it better than anyone else. Go to assist.com slash security. We thank them for their support of security now. All right, Steve, I'm ready. I've got my um, my thinking cap on. Some may call this a dunce cap, but it's a thinking cap. And I'm prepared to think. Tell well, me, tell me, sir, how do we, what do we, where do we go now that we've been building a computer? We've, we've established a beautiful foundation over the, the series that we've, covered so far the idea being of course to demystify what a computer is how it works what it does we know that that there's a main memory and there's a program counter that points to a current address of a word in memory and that that word is composed of a bunch of bits and that those bits are broken into fields one, the most important field being the so-called opcode, the operation code. The pattern of bits in there t describes to the computer or specifies what the computer should do with that instruction, each one of these being an instruction. And the rest of the bits in this word pro provide the parameters for the instruction. For example, it might be uh, clear the accumulator or it might be load from a location in memory into a register or store the contents of a register into a location in memory. So so when we've looked at what the stack does, the notion of, of the convenience of being able to have sort of a scratch pad where we can push things on and we can pop them off in, in the reverse order so that as long as we kind of keep track of our own housekeeping, we don't have to um, preset preset aside areas to read and write into everybody's able to share this as long as they do so carefully and so we've 
we've talked about subroutines. We talked about hardware interrupts and how interrupts from physical I.O. devices, which are much slower than the computer is running very fast, are able to be used to yank control away, yank the program counter to somewhere else, allowing the computer to service this interruption, send characters out to a slow printer, for example, and then return to the code that was running as if nothing had happened. So we've got this architecture, and and that's where everything began. What I want to do today is is describe the evolution from there to now. That is, what happened after this and what were the pressures that were on the industry and on the engineers and and on the companies that evolved this from that very clear and, and sort of basic beginning to present day machines. So, so one of the things that happened as, as hardware became less expensive and programmers were complaining to the engineering team that, you know, like, Hey, It'd be nice to have some more registers here. We've got the accumulator, but we're having to use it sort of as a scratch pad for main memory. We can't really hold much of of what's going on in the accumulator. So they say we need some more, we need, you know, more registers, more accumulators. And so the engineers said, okay, uh, well, that means we're going to have to make the word longer because we're going to need some more bits in the instruction to specify which register you want to load and store and, and add and so forth. And so the engineers said, yeah, okay, fine. Do whatever you, or, 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 the, or the programmer said, that'll, that'll be fine. So words got longer. And then some of the engineering guys said, well, you know, a simple instruction like clear a register, that doesn't have a memory address that doesn't need a memory address so that one could be shorter and we, how about you know the 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 engineer said to the programmers what about if if like you could add two regions of memory and store in a third and the programmer said oh you mean like with with, with one instruction and the engineering guy said yeah why not and then the programmer said well that'd be fantastic well, of course, that would mean that the instruction, a single instruction, would need to contain three memory addresses for an add. It'd have to be, you know, one of the, the address of one of the operands, the address of the other operand to be added, and the address of the location where the result would be stored. Well, memory addresses take lots of bits in order to address a region, you know, enough memory. So this kind of instruction would be really long. So what evolved was, and this was a major break, was the notion of variable length instructions. We started off with fixed length instructions on our very simple machine where where most of the instructions were memory reference and only referencing one piece of memory at a time, load from this memory, store to this memory, add from this memory to the accumulator or or and from the memory to the accumulator as we've discussed. But as machines became more 
powerful, essentially because hardware prices were coming down, integrated circuits were happening. It was it was possible, it was practical to put more complexity into the systems. The programmers were demanding more features. And so if you were going to have an instruction which had three memory addresses in it, it was going to be really long, multiple bytes of memory. But if you had an instruction that was going to just say clear an accumulator, that could be one or two bytes. So we, we broke from this notion of fixed length instructions into variable length instructions. And at that point, all bets were off because now we could make our computers very complex. They could have, for example, you could have an instruction that was a prefix byte that said, you know that opcode we had? Well, here's a whole nother set of opcodes. So now we weren't limited to, you know, eight or nine or 12 opcodes. We could have hundreds. It was, it was practical to have many more possible operations. So, so the, the engineer said, okay, well, what are we going to do with all this power? And the programmer said, well, um, since you're asking, uh, there's some other instructions we'd like to have. Like, uh, how about we do a lot of things with linked lists? So how about an instruction to do linked lists? And the engineers said, wow, that'll take like a lot of manipulation. And the programmers said, well, yeah, you know, what are you guys doing? Go, you know, do that for us. And, and so the, the engineers said, okay, uh, you know, write that down, Harvey. That's not, you know, we're going to go implement that. And then they said to the programmers, what else do you want? And they said, well, we, you know, we do a lot of subroutine calling. And we know that when we call a subroutine, we need to save all the registers. But it's tedious to have to like, push this register and push that one and then push the next one and push the one after that. And then before we exit to pop them in reverse sequence, how about an instruction for calling subroutines where like we had bits in the instruction which specified which of the registers to preserve in the subroutine call. And the engineer said, oh, we like that. That's cool. You know, write that one down. So, so the programmers got very creative with the stuff they wanted. But then the engineers who left that, you know, imaginary meeting went back to their, their, their own area and said, okay, now we're in trouble. How in the world are we going to arrange to implement instructions this complicated? I mean, these things have sort of gotten out of control. And remember that the very simple fixed length instruction computers were, for example, in the case of a PDP-8, they were, they were contained on just three 8 by 10 circuit boards that weren't very dense, that just had simple AND and OR gates on them because everything happened in a single cycle. Well, that's one of the other things that changed. As these instructions got more complex, no way were you able, well, for example, in the case of pushing a random, well, not a random, a specified subset of registers, well, this instruction was going to take, could take a long time to execute. One instruction, because the instruction would specify, you know, 
some number of registers get pushed. So it's going to have all these memory cycles after it reads the instruction, all these memory cycles to push these registers in succession. And there's going to be a reciprocal instruction to pop some subset back off. So that's going to take many cycles. And an instruction for managing a linked list. There actually was such a thing in the VAX. The deck VAX had a linked list. Really? That's such oh, a yeah. high-level that primitive. I mean, golly. Yeah, it was amazing how complicated <laughs> these instructions got. Yeah. There were some that were like, the, the, the programmers said, well, you know, we spent a lot of time trying to find the first bit which is set in a, in a long run of memory. We want to, like, find bit. How about an instruction that just reads memory until it finds a bit set? Oh, jeez. I mean, and there is such a thing. There is that instruction. And so, for example, in the, in, in the famous Intel x86 instruction set, instructions can range from one byte long to 17 bytes long. Wow. There's, there's that kind of, of range. So, so the engineers who actually had to create a machine that would deliver this kind of power said, okay, look, we cannot. Give us a break. We, yeah, <laughs> we, we cannot design hardware that, I mean, you know how many and and or gates it would take to, to do this. We're, do, we're not so, going to do your job for you, for crying out loud. So what they said was, you know, the, I mean, and it was probably an instruction like this, this pop multiple registers right. thing. They said, well, we, we, you know, now that we've got all these cycles that it's going to take, we need, we need micro cycles. We need something like a computer in the computer, mm. which can be smart enough to implement very complex instructions. And so someone said, what are we going to call that? <laughs> well, we'll call it microcode. Hmm. And it's like, oh, okay. So what they did was, and this was a revolution in computer architecture, was they actually, they, they dropped the idea of unbelievable rat's nests of and and or gates essentially to to try to implement this ever expanding aggressive instruction set and they said wait a minute computers have sort of flow paths there's like there's an an, an adder that can get its data from different places and there's a memory buffer that has the contents of memory and there's you know maybe a multiplier that, that has its input so Imagine a very different kind of instruction word, probably long, many bits. But the, the bits in this so-called microcode, they just enable the flow of data in ver along these different data paths at different times. And, and so just by sort of opening and closing these data paths in sequence we can implement a complex instruction in multiple small steps. So the outside world still sees it as a single instruction. Inside, the microcode has many small steps, which it goes through to pull off 
this complex instruction. So the programmers don't see it on the outside, but the, but the engineers who engineer the microcode, they've, they came up with a whole new way of thinking about, about how to engineer a computer. I always assumed that all uh, comp- processors had microcode. I didn't realize that was a later invention. Yeah, it was, it was, and it was something that was developed through this necessity right. of they just couldn't, you know, it's like, how, how are we going to do this with just and and or gates? <laughs> right. And so the idea was that you'd have this, the so-called micro store was, was very fast because it had to run in like much faster than main memory. Main memory was chunking along, you know, just reading instructions but the microcode had to run many times faster in order to, in order to essentially to have all those little microcycles fit within one major instruction cycle in order to get the job done. And that also meant that the instructions no longer all took the same amount of time. As we said, something that some you know, more complex instructions would take more time. But that allowed this flexibility of instruction length for example the microcode if you, if you were doing a fancy operation like adding two words b- both in main memory and storing them to a third that was no problem now you just you know that instruction had many more microcode steps in it in order to get the job done and so so this really changed the way the system was working the, the, you know the, the the internal design of the computers and so, what that also, of course, did was create a, a renaissance in complexity. Because when the programmers heard that now there was like a computer in the computer, then they went hog wild with instructions they wanted. Because it was like, I mean, it's very much like, you know, we all have heard the slogan that Apple has, there's an app for that. Right. There's a well, microcode for that. There's became, an instruction for that. There's an instruction for that. <laughs> you know, anything these guys could, these programmers could think of, they'd say, hey, how about one that does this? Right. And the engineer said, you really need that? Oh, yeah, yeah, I needed that yesterday, and I wish I had that. Okay, fine. Well, So it, is, it does operate faster if you put it in, in, uh, in the microcode, in the, in the chip, than if you wrote it. I mean, it's easy to write a linked list in a higher-level language or even assembler, but it's yes. faster if you put it in microcode. Well, and see that the perfect question, because remember that main memory was still very slow, uh, and and it was very expensive. Got it. So what had happened was computers turned into interpreters. Right. It was to save memory. Well, exactly. So what you had was super powerful instructions. That then inside the computer, it ran around mm-hmm. and pulled it off. But that meant that you, you were saving main memory and you didn't have to fetch it that often. That is, if fetching from memory was time constrained, and it was because main memory was slow still, then, you know, it was core. Remember, every time you had to read, reading was a destructive process. So then you had to rewrite what you'd read because reading, for, you know, the way, the way to read from cores, you set everything to zero and you see where pulses come out in the cores that switched from a one to a zero, meaning that those were ones before you set them to zeros. Now they're that nothing. Meant, <laughs> not, now they were nothing. So you had to reset them to Holy ones again. Holy moly. So, so this gave 
a lot of opportunity for the microcode to, to run much faster. And it meant that your code density in main memory was very high. Essentially, we'd created an interpreter. And right. we know that, that an, an interpreted system is, allows very dense interpreted instructions that where the instructions themselves are doing a lot. Ironically, it, we we are we do have a constrained hardware environment these days with mobile devices with cell phones, and they for the most part use interpreted uh, virtual machines to save space. Well, so yes, what happened was as technology moved forward, memory became faster, and more than that, it became cheaper. We just got better, you know, production rates, and we got more clever. And, and we began to not be memory constrained. Um, and at some point, some engineers said, you know, let's profile actual code that's in the wild, out there that's running. Let's analyze the code and, and see what instructions are being used. The other thing that had happened in this, during the same period of time is compilers came into use. Back in the beginning, it was the programmers writing all of this in machine language slash assembly language that said, oh, I'd love to have an instruction for doing linked lists that I wouldn't have to be writing that all the time. And so, so over time, compilers came into play. Um, it just made sense to create a higher level language that itself would then create the assembly language, machine language that would drive the machine. The, and, but here was a problem. Compilers, it turns out, couldn't make use of all this fancy stuff. The compiler, <laughs> the nature of the compiler, you see what I mean? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It, yeah, humans could, but the compiler was like, wait a minute. I, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, well, it just it didn't make sense. The, the, what had happened was instruction sets had become very specialized right. in, in individual. So it's great for assemblers, for people yes. who write, like you who write machine language, but not for a automated not for system. a mechanized yeah. code generator that, that would sort of always be using the least common denominator. And so, well, that's a good when, point too, since not every chip would have that capability. Right. right. So, so when they went when, when the Computer architects of the past profiled the actual instructions that were being used. They, f they discovered the familiar 90-10 rule. You know, 10% of the instructions were used 90% of the right. time. Right. And then they said, wait a minute. If, if these fancy instructions are not being used... Look at the expense in this machine for a linked list instruction or, you know, these wacky, you know, bit search nonsense that we ended up getting talked into by the programmers. Compilers never use these. Yet, even though they're not using them, they're in the machine. Everyone that we push out the door has very expensive to implement instructions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that nobody uses because we, 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 you know, we fired the assembly language programmers and we hired <laughs> Fortran programmers right. or COBOL programmers and the compilers now do the job that the assembly language guys used to do and the compilers aren't using 
any of these instructions, which every single time we push one off the assembly line, we're paying for all this microcode store to implement things that no one's using. So there was a a complete rethink at that point. And where does this some, happen? Is it happening in Intel or is it happening elsewhere? It was happening in, in this was sort of it was happening in universities actually. The the spark came from Stanford and Sun um, or Sun later, and the the MIPS risk machine was uh, at, at Berkeley, and the ARM from Acorn was in the UK, and so that's where this notion, you know, they said, hey, let's let's reduce the instruction set complexity, and someone said, ooh, risk, R I S C, reduced instruction set complexity. Um, or reduce instruction set count, it's sometimes known as. The idea was that they realized they'd sort of gotten way off track with these incredibly expensive um, instruction sets because they said, wait a minute, let, let, let's, you know, hold on. Let's instead be, kind of go back to where we were. That is, let's have very simple instructions which now that main memory had was fast had caught up um in in terms of the speed we needed and it got cheap the other thing is that memory cost dropped through the floor so you no longer had to have you know an entire operating system and 20 shared time sharing partitions all fitting somehow into 64k which actually was done once no, now we had, you know, at, 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 at this point, megabytes of memory easily. So code didn't have to be as dense. You, and, and essentially, there was this, this wave of simplification that said, wait a minute, let's go back to, oh, the other thing is that, remember, we went to a, to a we had variable length instructions. Well, the only way you could handle a variable length instruction was in microcode. Having, you know, microcode that knew that, oh, look, this particular opcode requires these different parameters, so we got to go fetch those now. And that, that means this instruction isn't, this instruction has more bytes after the opcode of parameters for the opcode. Well, all that threw, was thrown out the window. They went back to a... A, a radically simplified architecture. Um, one of the most popular is is called a load store architecture, which is now currently today the most popular of architectures. The idea being that you have exactly one instruction for loading something from memory. You have exactly one instruction for storing something into memory. And all the other instructions deal with a much richer set of registers. Maybe 32 is, is the number that most of these architectures have now. So you've got 32 registers, and you can do things like add register 1 to register 2 and store it in register 3. You cannot add register 1 to the contents of memory. That just... The, 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 it, the, the other thing that, again, in a, in a code analysis, what was seen was that that wasn't being done that often. So they said, okay, let's, let's try a whole different approach. 
instead of instructions, instead of like having all instructions able to add and subtract and multiply and, and do things with main memory, let's have a load instruction and a store instruction and then everything else, you know, our jumps and our branches and our, 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 our math and logical things, those only work with the contents of, of what's in the registers. And, and we're going to have, oh, that allows us to go back to a fixed length. And that means that every single instruction, like back in the old days, is a single cycle. That is one cycle. So now that main memory can catch up, or if not, then, you know, caching had come into vogue. So then there was this notion of, they noted that programs tend to sort of stay in the area where they're executing a lot. And so the the concept of caching came in in order to provide a risk processor that was able to ask for an instruction every single cycle because it was able to execute an instruction in a single cycle. Um, it was able to, um, the, the cache would feed the instructions at that rate. And so the idea was lots of little simple instructions executed very fast. And then other things could be done. Like you could, you, if you knew that the instructions were all the same length, you could fetch a block of them ahead of time and bring them into the cache so that they were ready in case the processor wanted them. So that's the, there's a little bit of like coming back where we came from, but with a much more mature understanding of, of how to get the most bang for the buck. And the major thing that happened is that this rethink of architecture allowed for a dramatic simplification. Now, Intel was, and even to this day, is stuck with this insane instruction set, which oh, I have to know by heart. Yeah. And, the but, x86. You know, they wanted the to get x86. out of it. They wanted to stop. Yes, the x86, it, with, it, with, with its variable byte length between 1 and 16 bytes, they're stuck. The problem is, the reason they're stuck is backward compatibility. It matters too much. I mean, it, they've always wanted to like break free, but how can they ever do an incompatible chip that like didn't run everything? Right. And it's, you know, they've, they've just, they've in fact, they were going to, and, and AMD was the one that put the, put the screws to them by saying, well, we're going to keep doing x86. Exactly. Yes. And so, so what happened was it was, for example, a company like Acorn back in the late eighties that was trying to come up with an, ex- with a successor. Acorn was an, ex- was the, preeminent personal computer company in the UK. There was Sinclair and then the, you know, and, and Commodore um, and then um, also, you know, some U.S. companies were had, had strong sales. But Acorn was, was the number one. They had a system based on the 6502, which was the, the originally the, the processor technology. Um, I'm sure that was the company, although processor technology was, was a different company also yeah there was um, oh man you know it's funny how blurred it all gets together 6502 is in the apple II and the uh and the tari i remember oh yeah yeah exactly. Crap, a crappy Tal- chip by the way the worst instruction set oh, <laughs> oh careful there we go. 
<laughs> I like the 68,000 instruction set, the Motorola instruction set. That was a well, very but that clean... Was a, that was a whole different generation. That It's really not fair. It was. You're right. Oh, no, no, no. I know. But yeah. even the Z80, I think, was a... A little bit cleaner than the well, that too was a different generation. The, the what the sixty five hundred two huh? was was incredibly inexpensive, right? And and it had a a beautifully designed Moss technology. Moa, that's yep. Moss technology. Thank you. Um, Thank the chat. It had uh, it. Mos being metal oxide semiconductor. Of right. course, it had a a beautiful instruction set, and what that allowed was it it was. It had just enough to get the job done, which meant it had a low transistor count, which meant it had a, a small die size, which meant your yield on wafers of the time, that is, you got many more processors per silicon wafer because the individual dies were so small because the transistor counts were so low. And that meant that made these processors incredibly inexpensive. And that's why Commodore, Apple, and and everybody jumped on the 6502. So what the Acorn guys did was they took a similar approach because they'd been 6502 users. They took a similar approach to the a brand new design and they were going to do a risk processor. So naturally, they called theirs the Acorn Risk Machine, ARM. Oh my goodness. And I had no idea. And they ended up with a beautiful, lean right. design. Right. It was the small transistor count. Now, the other thing that is expensive in large dies and large transistor counts is every transistor you've got not only takes up space, but it takes up a little bit of power. And so the other problem Intel has been fighting valiantly all along is they've got this insane instruction set that they can't get away from, which they're trying to make faster and faster somehow. The problem is they are just dogged by power consumption because they, because this complex instruction set requires a huge amount of power. I mean, like disproportionately so just to feed the, 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 the latent complexity in the instruction set takes its toll. Whereas the the ARM, the Acorn Risk Machine chip, because they 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 had the idea. I mean, they they came a little bit after the Spark and the MIPS, so they were able to learn from those designs. But they also came from a sixty five oh two era of understanding low complexity, and interestingly. They were a small company with a small design team, and they didn't have fancy tools. So they also had no choice but to do a simple, small risk machine. Well, even though it couldn't compete then with the Spark and the MIPS, it competes now because of its low power consumption. And what happened was in the evolution of Acorn, they ended up renaming themselves Advanced Risk Machines Limited, again, ARM, and they're a licensing company that licenses the intellectual property of the ARM risk core and allows other people. They don't produce them themselves. 
That's why, for example, Qualcomm has the Snapdragon, which is a the an ARM-based chip. And it's why Apple, with their A4, is an ARM-based chip. So Advanced Risk Machines is, a, is an intellectual property licensing company licensing this beautiful core, which has, because of its... It's, it was always a, an efficient design, but it was a small design because it's the only thing they could design. But small means very inexpensive, just like it did on the 6502, and it means there just aren't that many transistors. The first arm had only 25,000 transistors compared to now you've, you've got hundreds of millions of transistors. So... So you had very low power, and because it was a relatively state-of-the-art design, the right architecture. And that's why everybody who's doing handheld devices is, has ARM-based technology. Makes sense. Because you get a lot of, you get, you get the processing power you want, but you, yeah, and it's inexpensive because it's a small die, and it's, it's inexpensive in power consumption, because it doesn't have that many transistors hungrily burning up power. And the ones it has are all in use. The other problem with the Intel instruction set is, as we saw, it's inefficient due to the 90-10 the 90, rule. So you got all these transistors sitting around not doing much in, you know, because they just end up being the exception rather than the rule. Whereas this lean risk design has all your transistors busy all the time, so that's efficient too. You get a lot of use for uh, out of the power that the transistor is using. And that's the story of risk. I love it. Uh, you know, and very today. timely because, of course, here we are sitting uh, looking at risk processors all the time now in our phones, in our iPad, and uh, all these small devices. You know, Android, which is originally running on an ARM processor, is being ported to uh, the Intel Atom processor so that uh, Google TV can run on an Atom-based system. Of course, it runs on a Java virtual machine, so it's probably a simple port to make. You just need a virtual machine uh, to do it. But I wonder if, right. what, what kind of efficiency hit they're going to take. It'll be interesting to see. Um, in two weeks, what I want to talk about, and this is the, I think this exhausts me in in talking about technology, is... The need for speed, because there's a fascinating story that's the last thing I want to cover on what has been done inside these machines to give us the speed they have. People are not going to (laughs) believe that. I mean, it is it just grays your hair. To, to think of the engineering that has gone into this, we're going to talk about pipelining and and uh, multiple issue and out of order execution. Oh, I love branch, that stuff. Branch prediction, yeah. super scalar stuff. I'm going to lay that out. And at the end of that episode, everyone's just going to look at their little, you know, their their iPod or their pad or their phone and think, you know, oh that stuff is in there. Yeah. And I mean, it makes you appreciate to, uh, I mean, to, I'm just stunned by by what went into the technology that we so easily take for granted today. It's really true. It's so complex and uh, and yet it works. It does. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. I hope everybody who's interested uh, knows about this and listens and uh, tell your friends if you think they'd be interested. Steve Gibson is the guy in charge at the Gibson Research Corporation, grc.com, if you want to uh, um, 
Find his SpinRight program and all the free stuff he gives away. He's also blogging now, steve.grc.com. And heaven forfend, heaven, heaven, amazing, hell hath frozen over. He's tweeting at SGGRC or at SGPAD for iPad stories or pad stories in general. And, and uh, for what it's worth, the followers my, uh, of my tweet stream found out about the flash problem immediately. That's and, a good way uh, to find this stuff. It's a good early warning system. Yes. It really is. I, call, I think of it almost as uh, a, a nascent internet nervous system where, you know, this, bzz, this stuff just goes out. And, you can, but, and also people who want to listen live uh, learned that I was going to be on Thursday instead of Wednesday. That, same that's way. That's true, too. Those, yes. Follow him on Twitter at SGGRC. Steve, uh, next week we will do Q&A. So if people have questions or comments or suggestions, they should go to uh, GRC.com slash feedback. Please. Yeah. And if you want the 16 kilobit version of the show, Steve makes a version of that available along with transcripts and show notes at his website, grc.com. So that's another reason to head over to the GRC site. And Steve, we'll catch you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. Security now.